Good evening. A New Year's Day veto override in the Senate. A New Year's night to remember in Tompkins Square Park. And Archbishop Desmond Tutu asked Joe Biden to tell the truth about Israel's nukes. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Friday, January 1st, 2021. Republicans in the United States Senate overrode President Trump's veto for the first time in his nearly four years in office. The move pushes through a defense policy bill against Trump's strong objections weeks before he leaves office. Seeing none on this vote, the yeas are 81, the nays are 13. Two-thirds of the senators voting, a quorum being present, having voted in the affirmative. The bill on reconsideration is passed. The objection to the president of the United States to the contrary notwithstanding. Meeting in a rare New Year's Day session, the Senate voted 81 to 13 to secure the two-thirds majority needed to override the veto with bipartisan support. Eight previous vetoes were upheld. There was debate over a related measure put into play by a Trump veto threat to increase the stimulus payout to Americans to $2,000 from the already approved $600. Independent firebrand Bernie Sanders responded to GOP critics of the increase. Does not know what's going on in the real world. Here's the real world. Gentleman in Texas wrote, $2,000 is the difference between keeping our apartment and being evicted. Mother in Virginia wrote, $2,000 means I can afford to feed my three kids. Now, maybe we should give her a long lecture on macroeconomics and how well the stock market is doing. All she's worried about is feeding her three children. Woman in Wisconsin wrote, $2,000 would mean not having to choose between rent and groceries and not having to ration my partner's meds. Woman in Nevada wrote, it means paying my rent and getting life-saving treatment because I can't afford the $50 copay through my work insurance just to see my neurologist right now. Father in Florida wrote, quote, it would mean I could pay my bills. My electricity and phone are about to get shut off. I didn't have money for my son on Christmas, and I won't have money for his birthday on January 2nd. Father in New Jersey wrote, it would mean I could pay off credit card debt accumulated during this pandemic, feed my children, and pay my bills. Parent in Massachusetts wrote, it would mean that I could pay my rent and electricity and put food on the table. Woman in Missouri wrote, it would mean getting out of crushing debt It would mean survival without daily fear. Someone in Texas wrote, it would mean I could actually put food in the fridge. Man in Maryland wrote, quote, it would mean I don't have to beg or go without food, shelter, and medicine. It would mean my family stays warm another couple of months and my dad gets proper treatment. The Democrats say they just want a chance to vote, an opportunity that's being blocked by Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Republicans claim a bigger stimulus check amounts to socialism for the rich because some payments might go to wealthier people, leading to an exchange with Sanders sparked by Republican Senator John Thune of South Dakota. If the same formula is used and you're increasing the amount by $1,400 per person, um, so you're going from basically for a family of four what would be $2,400 payment to $8,000 payment, and you phase that down using the same formula, does the center from Illinois understand the math and why that that skews toward people who make a lot more money than they would under the other formula? If the question's directed toward me, I'll answer it. Well, I just think that you're making a point and a statement which is not accurate. Because you're saying the formula is the same, 
the formula is the same, but the inputs change. And so the, the way it ramps down means that somebody who makes $350,000 gets a payment under the Sanders-Hawley proposal that they wouldn't, but they wouldn't know, and it phases out a lot sooner, as you know. So let's be clear about how that formula works, because you're, you're, you, you are misrepresenting the way that formula works. And I asked my friend from... Senator Vermont has the floor. Thank you very much, Mr. President. I would ask my friend uh, from South Dakota, do you disagree with the tax policy center which says that the top 5% of Americans, the wealthiest people in our country, would receive less than 1% of the total benefits being disbursed. I have not seen the tax policy center, but I know, as, I know math, and I know as a basic principle that when you apply, when you stick bigger numbers in there, and you're using the same formula to phase something out, you're going to make it available to people who make a lot more money. That's, that, is a, that is a mathematical fact. So when you're talking about trying to say, oh, my God, all of this money is going to the rich, that ain't really true. But I would also ask my friend, where did you suddenly become a religious adherent about concern of socialism for the rich when you gave 83% of the benefits to the rich and large corporations in the tax bill that you supported? Where was your concern about socialism for the rich? When Amazon, owned by the richest guy in the world, got a $129 million tax rebate. I didn't hear much about socialism for the rich during that debate. Yeah. Well, very simply, what you are suggesting, so you're, what you're saying here is the, the owner of the Washington Post, who said this is really bad policy and shouldn't be done in this way at the end of this year, uh, is that what you're saying, that because he is a, a wealthy person, that somehow that's why he's making that statement? I think the Washington Post editorial board, on most case, in most cases, would be very sympathetic to the senator from Vermont's argument because they take, a, they, take, they take a liberal point of view on almost every issue. We have limited amount of resources. This is borrowed money, as the senator from Vermont knows. And when we spent months, literally months, and you asked, why can't you guys just come down here? Why can't you just come down here and debate this? We tried for months to get the Democrats down here to debate a bill. This is a great debate. John, we should have this debate. And I, in, two minutes, in two minutes, John, I'm going to give you the opportunity to say you support what we're doing, and then we will have this debate. That's your opportunity. But I want to get back. The senator from South Dakota did not answer the question that there was not apparently huge concern about socialism for the rich in the bill that they supported or worried about the debt that would incur. Um, so I see, if I may say so, a bit of hypocrisy here. And Thune in the GOP did not take the debate. The results are nearly a foregone conclusion, with more stimulus money awaiting the new administration of President-elect Joe Biden and the results of a runoff election for Senate in Georgia. And as the debate unfolded in the Senate on Friday, other extraordinary events were also playing out. Senator Mitch McConnell, a Kentucky Republican, is urging Republicans not to try to overturn the election that went against the GOP president, Donald Trump. Not everyone is listening to McConnell, though. Missouri Republican Josh Hawley is a close Trump supporter, a possible presidential candidate in 2024. Hawley is planning to object to state electoral vote tallies on January 6th. Well, on the other side of the GOP split, 
GOP Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska warns that a challenge is dangerous, a dangerous ploy threatening the nation's civic norms. Caught in the middle is Vice President Mike Pence facing growing pressure and a lawsuit from Trump allies over his ceremonial role in presiding over the session on Wednesday. Biden set to be inaugurated January 20th after winning the Electoral College vote 306 to 232. But the planned objections in the Senate and House requires a two hour debate and a vote. One Biden would certainly win. A lawsuit over the issue in Texas argues Pence has discretion over the count and the vice president can decide if he wants to certify the results. That's never happened before. Pence hasn't yet said what he plans to do. The Biden team called the moves an antic. A federal appeals court has cleared the way for the only woman on federal death row to be executed before President-elect Joe Biden takes office. The ruling handed down Friday by a three-judge panel on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit concluded that a lower court judge erred when he vacated Lisa Montgomery's execution date in an order last week. Montgomery had been scheduled to be put to death at the Federal Correctional Center complex in Terre Haute, Indiana. Montgomery was convicted of killing 23-year-old Bobby Joe Stinnett in Missouri in December 2004. Biden opposes the death penalty and his spokesperson says he'd work to end its use. But Biden has not said whether he will halt federal executions after he takes office January 20th. And it was a surreal scene as 2020 turned to 2021 in Times Square as celebrations went on without the massive crowds that usually accompany ringing in the new year at the crossroads of the world. 3,000 pounds of confetti fell when the ball completed its descent and the 2021 sign lit up to mark the new year. Normally, countless people from around the world head to Times Square to celebrate, but this year's celebrations went virtual amid the ongoing coronavirus epidemic pandemic. The event recognized the heroes of 2020, the frontline workers who've been fighting to save lives and keep the city and nation running during the pandemic. Approximately 40 essential workers and their families were allowed to watch the live performance in person with social distancing measures in place. Mayor Bill de Blasio was on hand and pushed the button that started the ball's descent. But New Yorkers weren't deterred from their own New York celebrations, their own New Year celebrations. Illegal fireworks illuminated the city. And in a park known for rowdy confrontations with the NYPD, a celebration got a little out of hand for the cops. About 100 mostly maskless revelers gathered at the rally at the gaily lit Christmas tree in the center of the park without permit or permission and counted down the end of 2020. At the same moment, Jim, a local resident in a wheelchair, grinned as he blasted a tune made famous by the Nashville Bomber, whose RV played the same song last week. Petula Clark's iconic pop tune, Downtown. The fun didn't last long. A gaggle of police vehicles from the 9th Police Precinct, lights blazing, drove directly into the park, announcing the party's over. Ladies and gentlemen, the park is now closed. Please go to the nearest exit. I'm just saying. 
The editor of The Shadow, an underground newspaper in the neighborhood, is Chris Flash, longtime resident. Flash says he's seen it all, from the 1988 riot by police who injured 120 unsuspecting people and included a helicopter trying to land in the park to enforce a new midnight curfew, to the 1991 riot over a free concert shut down by the cops early, and the many struggles over three years to preserve a tent city for homeless people in the park. It seemed like a new tactic in uh, passive-aggressive behavior on the part of the NYPD. The flotilla of police cars came in. I counted nine police cars with not sirens audibly heard, but the flashing lights. And they surrounded us in a, in a kind of a circular formation. Um, they slowly got out of their cars. They slowly approached everybody. They stuffed up, puffed out their chests. They didn't really say anything. They just made their presence intimidating enough to make people start to leave with, before they actually read the riot act, which was the park is closed, you must leave immediately, as a method of making us leave without saying anything at first. There was really no call for it. It was a very peaceful gathering around the tree, the Christmas tree, which I think was put there for the purpose of gathering around Christmas and New Year's. It seemed more wise to me to have people gathered in a park instead of being on the streets roaming around. Definitely overkill and definitely intimidation, a new form of intimidation on the part of the police. When people were leaving, the gates had already been locked, so the police were making them leave, and to leave, they had to be able to scale four or five-foot fence. For some reason, they were directing people to leave the park in areas where the gates had already been locked by the police, so they thought it was kind of funny, perhaps, to make people scale the fence. Some could and some couldn't. It's funny, that fence was actually, the height of that fence was increased after the most recent big riot in Tompkins Square Park in 1991. They increased the height by another eight inches to make it harder for people to scale it, to go in either direction, in or out of the park, in the event of another police uh, skirmish. So, yeah, the fence is higher than it used to be, and they were directing people to lock the fences to leave the park. Uh, <laughs> lock well, gates. <laughs> there was cases where people have been told you must leave, and then they couldn't leave, and then they arrested everybody on the Brooklyn Bridge, and recently, famously, up in the Bronx, that happened. That is another police tactic. They will they will surround you, give you no exit position. They're surrounding you in a pincer movement in order to arrest and grab people and not allow them an escape valve to leave the area or to clear the area after being read the riot act. On one occasion, 1991, a bunch of us were just hanging hang out in Tompkins Square Park up to the point of when the alleged curfew was to be enforced. The police came, undercover cops came, they said leave the park. So we were walking out of the park toward the 7th Street and Avenue B exit and they locked the gate in front of us as we're approaching. Undercover cops came behind us and grabbed us, and I was arrested while I was leaving the park after being told to leave the park for the curfew. So it's not an unknown tactic on their part. You refer over and over again to other protests, other curfews, other times the police were there. That's unusual for a lot of neighborhoods. True. They seem to be fixated on Tompkins Square Park even to this day, long after all of the, the riots and skirmishes we engaged in with police during riot days from uh, 88 to like 91. What I'm seeing on the plus side is a lot of new, young energy. People, younger people who didn't experience the riots, who were perhaps not born or probably were toddlers then, are now in the park. There's a bunch of new people in the park, new energy, new young people, and they're embracing their park in their community, in their neighborhood, as a place to be, the place to congregate, the place to interact, the place to network with each other. And that includes musicians, people just hanging out and having a good time. It's really cool. It's kind of like the 80s, that free-flowing spirit of the 80s again, with all new people, all younger people. A healthy political activist body needs new blood regularly, 
And I'm really kind of turned on and excited by these new people coming to the park and using their park. Do they make people leave at midnight on Christmas? People come to celebrate Christmas and their Christmas tree, is, I like it. I don't have any big problem against it, but it was originally put there as a... Um, sort of a symbol of the opponents of the protesters. That tree was put there by a group called, calling itself the Tompkins Square Neighborhood Coalition, and the coalition was not a coalition of community groups. It was actually just one group which was designed to remove the homeless uh, from Tompkins Square Park to pave the way for the gentrification to come and making the park a selling point for market-rate apartments nearby. So that tree has a dirty history, and granted, many people who go there to celebrate and enjoy the tree now have no idea of the history of that tree. It does go back 28 years. So, you know, I can't fault people for enjoying the tree now, but there is a dirty history behind that tree. Chris Flash is editor of The Shadow, an underground newspaper in the Lower East Side, and it's available at many locations, many newsstands in the Avenue A, First Avenue, Second Avenue, Avenue B area. vote in Albany this year repealed the law known as 50A that had let governments keep police and firefighter disciplinary records from being made public under the Freedom of Information Law. A state Supreme Court ruling last week temporarily halted the release of any Rochester, New York, police officer disciplinary records through a public database. The city of Rochester planned to publicly release a database of the files of about 120 Rochester police officers by the end of the year. But state Supreme Court Justice Anne-Marie Tadeo issued a temporary restraining order on December 23rd to stop the city from releasing records in response to a lawsuit filed two days earlier by the Rochester Police Locust Club, the union representing roughly 700 Rochester officers. The suit sought to block the city from putting those records online until those records are properly reviewed by the officer and until any mistakes or errors which are brought to the city's attention are addressed and corrected. After a summer of conflict between New Yorkers and police, there's been a lot of pressure by legal aid and journalists for New York City to release more of its own records. Speaking yesterday, Mayor Bill de Blasio says the city of New York's hands are tied until the Rochester suit is settled. Last I heard from the law department, that lawsuit still is standing in the way of the disclosure of a, a lot of information we're ready to make public about disciplinary records. I don't believe that's going to go on that long. I believe at some point this case will be resolved and it will make clear that our ability to release records is now quite clear under the new state law and we will release those records. But I don't think the lawsuit has gotten to the point where we can do it yet. That transparency about police disciplinary records is going to help us move forward as a city. It's going to help people trust their police. It's going to help us be safer. As soon as we get clearance from the courts, we're going to progress with that. Mayor Bill de Blasio. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. The Guardian just published a piece by Archbishop Desmond Tutu titled Joe Biden Should End the U.S. Pretense Over Israel's Secret Nuclear Weapons. The cover-up has to stop, and with it, the huge sums in aid for a country with oppressive policies towards Palestinians. Tutu, a Nobel Peace Laureate, is a former Archbishop of Cape Town and from 1996 to 2003 was chair of South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission. This piece states, every recent U.S. administration has performed a perverse ritual as it has come into office. All have agreed to undermine U.S. law by signing secret letters stipulating they'll not acknowledge something everyone knows, that Israel has a nuclear weapons arsenal. 
Tutu continues, the incoming Biden administration should forthrightly acknowledge Israel as a leading state sponsor of nuclear proliferation in the Middle East and properly implement U.S. law. The director of the Washington, D.C.-based Institute for Research Middle Eastern Policy is Grant F. Smith. He says the U.S. is hypocritical because it allows Israel to keep its nuke secret while giving billions to its defense in violation of U.S. law. There were confrontations between the Johnson administration, the Kennedy administration, and and by the time Nixon comes into the scene, they decided just to sweep everything under the rug and that being ambiguous and never allowing official information about the weapons program to get out and not acknowledging the weapons was going to be the strategy, the ambiguity strategy. And a lot of it is fear of backlash. Presidents and parties and politicians don't like to challenge Israelis on anything because they fear that the lobbies and the PACs and the donors and the voters are going to come after them for doing that. What is the purpose of Israel being a nuclear-armed power? If you look at the Israeli think tanks, like the Begin Sadat Center and others, they were pretty honest back in the 90s in their papers saying this is all about deterrence and that by having the weapons and essentially everyone knowing they had the weapons, that it would deter any sort of existential threat to them. It certainly has not been the case. The thinking was that originally it would be this great deterrence, but it hasn't resulted that way. It hasn't actually worked that way. The annual sort of UN resolutions in which the majority of the United Nations calls on Israel to renounce possession of nuclear weapons is a more honest assessment of what's going on. It really is all about power and influence. So if you can have the Israelis sailing around the world with a triad of nuclear weapons at their disposal, it gives them an incredible amount of influence to be able to really carry through a threat against an Iran or some other adversary that no other power has, and to do so with the perceived tacit approval of the United States. By that logic, isn't it perfectly appropriate for Iran or any potential adversary of Israel to have their own nuclear weapons? The Iranians are actually signatories to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which Israel has refused to sign, and they are inspected by the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency. They are safeguarded from going nuclear, and they haven't really shown any desire recently to do that. Well, the United you know, States invaded Iraq looking for weapons of mass destruction. Um, right. It seems a bit hypocritical. It does seem extremely hypocritical, and the U.S. lost a lot of goodwill and credibility and it's, I think, severely impacted domestic beliefs by Americans and what their government says about anything, not just Middle East policy, but COVID vaccines and whether the government's actually doing anything for them or whether this the news media, which was so much on board in promoting that uh, WMD myth, uh, is trustworthy. So it's had all sorts of long term repercussions that we're still suffering from today. Right. And just to wrap up, what uh, what should we do? Even leading strategic thinkers who developed the nuclear Navy said, I wish we could just sink all of these ships to the bottom of the sea. That's the way a lot of these nuclear theorists and engineers think 
by the time they get to the end and look at what they've done. It's very simple. Americans really should be demanding that the Symington and Glenn amendments to the U.S. Foreign Aid Act be honored. It's the law. And the U.S. is not supposed to be just willy-nilly supporting non-signatories to the NPT by delivering aid when there are all sorts of subject rules and regulations that have to be followed when that's the case. This call by Desmond Tutu and others, especially South Africa, which was a partner in nuclear weapons development with the Israelis back in the day, they're right. The moral and uh, ethical and legal case is to remove this because then you'd also remove an obstacle to peace, which is just the absolute impudence when it comes to any sort of accountability. Granoff Smith is director of the Washington, D.C.-based Institute for Research, Middle East Policy. South Africa was once a nuclear nation. It was aided by Israel. After the end of apartheid and the new presidency of Nelson Mandela, South Africa renounced nuclear weapons and dismantled its arsenal. Ukraine and Kazakhstan are two former nuclear nations that disarmed as well. And that's some of the news for Friday, January 1st, 2021. The news producer, Linda Perry, our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, for the WBAI News, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Have a happy and healthy new year, and thanks for listening.